Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome to episode three of The Hero's Journey. I'm your host, Ashley Lukens. And in this episode, I sat down with Mackenzie Feldman, who's the founder and executive director of Herbicide Free Cal and Herbicide Free Campus. She zoomed in from San Francisco, California. Mackenzie's also the host of her own podcast, which I highly suggest you check out, Agenda 23, Food Conversations Between Generations. And in that podcast, she hits on a theme that we discuss in her episode, which is what does intergenerational knowledge and power transfer look like in movements? Mackenzie is an activist who saw an opportunity in her own life to affect change and turned that opportunity into something much bigger. While playing volleyball, Mackenzie noticed that groundskeepers on her campus were spraying Roundup next to the volleyball courts. And she turned this into an effort which resulted in the banning of all herbicide applications on UC California campuses. I hope you enjoy the episode. Happy Friday. Thanks for having me. Um, tell me where you're zooming in from. I'm zooming in from San Francisco. I'm working out of my co-working space cubicle. Nice. And how did you get to California? Um, I'm originally from Hawaii and then I went to UC Berkeley. So I was there for four years and then graduated in 2018 and then have been in the Bay Area ever since. Yeah. And what do you love about the Bay Area? Um, hmm. I feel like there's actually a lot of things I don't love, but it's beautiful. There's a lot of good people working on important things. I think going to Berkeley really blew my mind at, in terms of just seeing how people stand up to, to different social issues and stuff. So that's a really beautiful part. Mm. I had that moment. I'm originally from Houston, Texas, and I also had that moment in college where I was like, wow, I'm not the only person who gives a shit. And there are entire communities of people that are working tirelessly to make the world a better place. Yeah, it's really cool to see that. So tell us about your work at Berkeley, because that's why we're here today. Yeah. Um, when I was at Berkeley, I started a campaign called Herbicide Free Cal to ban herbicides from campus. And that started because one day I showed up for beach volleyball practice and they were spraying herbicides around where we were practicing. And I'm sure we'll dive into this part later, but coming from Hawaii and being aware of the pesticide issue in Hawaii, I was pretty shocked that we were practicing right next to where they were spraying this herbicide. So me and my teammate got in touch with the grounds manager and asked him if 
he could stop spraying this. And to our surprise, he was actually really cool and willing to do that and just said, Hey, you know, we don't, I don't, I don't have the staff or the time to pick the weeds by hand, but if your team wants to do it, that's great. And I won't spray here anymore. So uh, because that was easier than we expected, we had the idea of, Hey, maybe we can expand this to the rest of campus. And so we started a campus-wide campaign and worked with Berkeley to get them to transition to organic land management. And since then, it really expanded beyond beyond Berkeley. And now we're working all over the country, which is, has been really cool. So let's um, go back and talk a little bit about this herbicide that was being sprayed, because I think it's pretty important for our listeners to understand sort of what we're talking about in more technical terms. Yeah, so if you're not familiar with the term herbicide, it's a chemical that is used to kill weeds. So pesticide is sort of the umbrella term. Any chemical used to kill a pest, herbicide specifically is to kill a weed. And I only knew that because when I was in high school in Hawaii, there was a huge battle of activists like Ashley who were fighting to get these chemicals, um, you know, to stop them from being sprayed near where children were going to school and where people were living. And so I did research on it and would go to talks and that, and was studying this at Berkeley, which is why I knew, but really most people have no idea. And so this was in 2017 when this happened at the beach volleyball court. And in 2015, the World Health Organization had declared glyphosate a probable carcinogen and glyphosate is the active ingredient in um in roundup in this case it was an herbicide called ranger pro which had the active ingredient glyphosate so all that to say it was a chemical that was probably going to cause cancer and something that we probably shouldn't be exposed to when we're you know we're we have bare skin and it's raining a lot and, and you don't know where these chemicals are going, essentially. And let's, glyphosate's really common. Like if I wanted to spray Roundup in my yard, like where do I get it? Home Depot. I just saw a commercial yesterday for Home Depot was playing about Roundup. Yeah, Home Depot, a lot, a lot of stores are going to start phasing it out but that's not to say they're just going to replace it with something that could be worse. But yeah, it's, I mean, it is pretty much available, you know, Ace Hardware, most places, except yeah. for Costco. Costco did take it off shelves. So go Costco. Hey, a victory. So Roundup is a general use pesticide for our listeners and it's commonly available. Anybody can pick it up. Anybody can use it. Your neighbor can use it. Your school can use it. And so here you are, um, recent export to California. You find out Roundup is being sprayed around your beach volleyball court. You reach out to the groundskeeper. They're like, no prob, got a hand weed. Like, what are our alternatives to Roundup, first and foremost? Yeah, it really depends on the area. So Roundup specifically, because it's designed to kill anything essentially that it comes in contact with. In this case, it was just 
hand pulling. They also can bring goats in to to eat the weeds. You can also, there's a lot of like steam machines and foam machines that are coming out that are vinegar based. So they're non-toxic and that's being used as a replacement. But also there's the argument of like, why can't we just leave the weeds here? Like who cares? You know, we're the only one that's seeing this every day and we don't really, you know, give a crap about it. You can say fuck on this podcast. (laughs) Free yourself. (laughs) We would rather have weeds than be exposed to a carcinogen. So, but yeah. And then in other places, you know, if it's, if it's different types of herbicides, there's, there's all kinds of things. And I don't know, I can get more into that. I can keep talking about it. I can talk about it for a long time, but there's a lot of alternatives. It is this kind of huge moment where we're like, why does a little grass in the concrete matter more to you than the health of yourself, your children and your community? I mean, I see these aunties and uncles all over Hawaii spraying their roundup on the, on the, driveway and I'm like what have we done as a culture that sort of controlling nature to such an extent has made us forget about our health um but I digress so you have it sounds like an early stage win um and you get them to stop using roundup on your beach volleyball court how does the work continue from there? Yeah, so from there, I ended up writing a piece, an op-ed in the school newspaper, which I always recommend when I work with students to do because you have to create your own victories. And if nobody knows about it, then you're never going to get support or you're never going to know you know, who you can impact. So I wrote uh, an op-ed about it and was surprised, honestly, by how many community members and students and people reached out that were in support of this. Like, I didn't think people knew about this issue. So that surprised me. And there was one woman in particular who reached out that said we could apply for this grant to bring in this organic land care specialist to train our groundskeepers. And so that was pretty awesome. So then we had to go to the ground manager of the entire campus. And at first, me and Bridget, who were both on the team who co-founded this campaign, we came in with pretty hot language of like, you know, how dare you spraying these cancer causing chemicals around campus? Because we we had to do a lot of research first. We had to find out what was being sprayed. It was clear that they were spraying all kinds of things all over campus. So once we figured that out, we were emailing and uh, just getting no responses. And, you know, and, and finally, after probably eight emails, Bridget said, we should probably change the way that we're approaching this and be nicer and so then we said you know thank you so much for everything that you do we're so grateful we would love to see how students get help and within 15 minutes he emailed back and said sure let's get coffee and talk about it and he he was so nice and you know just classic like overworked underpaid doesn't really want to do extra work but was really uh flattered that students were interested in this and so from there, it was it was just it all just sort of flowed, and he ended up, you know, signing his name off for this grant. We got the grant. We brought in this land organic land care expert Chip, and he trained all of our groundskeepers on how to do this. And so, to your point about what are the alternatives, and and when you're managing a lawn, 
uh, in this case, it was soil testing. It was figuring out what are the imbalances, aeration, compost tea, overseeding, like all of these things. And so now the campus is pretty much fully organic, which is pretty awesome. So it was like we got these two pilot sites and then slowly like they the groundskeepers themselves like loved it. It was looking great and they wanted to keep building and doing different sites. So it yeah, it's pretty awesome. I'm surprised that the groundskeepers themselves weren't up in arms about the daily use of glyphosate, which we know is a hazard to human beings. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that journey and what happened when the groundskeepers started to realize that they themselves were some of the greatest victims of this habit we have towards lawn care. Yeah. No, it's a great point. I think it's complicated because the pesticide industry has become so good at sort of getting to the workers first and influencing them. And so when they do their, you know, pesticide trainings and things, a lot of those are influenced by the industry. And so they're told, you know, these chemicals are safe. Like Lee Johnson, who sued Monsanto, he was told that Roundup was safe enough to drink by his boss. I don't think that's because the boss was evil. I think that's just because the boss was also told that. And so it gets complicated because I think on one hand, the workers themselves are told that these chemicals are fine. And also, they also just don't want to do extra work. And so I don't think, I think probably some of them are aware that maybe these aren't the safest things, especially when I have to wear all of this gear. Like, why would I be wearing this gear if it was safe? Um, and on the other hand, it's a ton of work if they were going to change the way that they were doing this. And so actually, when we banned glyphosate from campus, uh, they, they ended up getting funding to hire a physical trainer who did foam rolling and stretching and all these things because they were bending down more often to pick weeds. But they were fine with it. I think now they're super thankful and I think they realize that it's better for them, but yeah, it's complicated. I think that they're never told the full impacts of the health and safety, to be honest. So as you started to see the wins on campus, like what changed for you internally as an activist? Um, and then also what was challenging you through that process? Yeah, I, I, and this is the reason I love working with students now is because I think what changed for me was just, it opened my eyes up. Like I really didn't think that we could we could make change like this. And so then I started to walk around campus with these eyes of, oh, I don't like what's going on here. You know, how can we change this? Or we don't have to just accept the fact that this campus looks this way, we can challenge this. And there's always more to be done, whether that's, um, like some of our campuses now, like Grinnell College in Iowa, they ripped up the lawn and planted native prairie because that was, you know, better for the environment. It could be a home for pollinators. It can sequester carbon, all of these things. And then they're so empowered and they were like, wow, we saw this lawn. We realized we didn't have to accept it and we ripped it up and we planted something new. And I think what changed for me and what I hope to inspire other students to think about is, yeah, you're paying to go to this campus. You don't have to just accept that it looks this way. And we talk a lot about decolonizing aesthetics and thinking about, you know, what did this campus look like prior to colonization? And 
I think there's so much coming out now about lawns that, you know, it's, it's like this really old, outdated bourgeoisie concept that was a signal of wealth. And I think our generation like really doesn't care about that. And we would rather just see native plants or really anything that can help mitigate climate, uh, climate change, especially in California, we're in this drought feels super unnecessary to have lawns. So I think just like, not even just about the herbicide issue, but what changed for me is just knowing that if a group of people decide that they don't, they want to change something, they have the power to do that. I love all of this. There's so much I want to hit on. And the first is this like notion of transforming and returning landscapes back to their sort of pre-contact, pre-colonization um, state, if that's even possible. Um, and knowing that you're a native Hawaiian living in California, how does native Hawaiian culture inform your work as an activist? Yeah, I think a lot of things. I think that I my path here, like I really don't believe that it happened by accident. I feel like I'm sort of just try to be like have my heart and mind open to what my next step is. And I feel really connected to my Hawaiian ancestors and just the fact that Hawaiians always thought about so many generations after them and protecting things for everyone that's to come. And I hope I hope to do that and I hope to just have that mindset. And I think just it, it fires me up to think about how in Hawaii, you know, there was about the same population that there is now and they were able to feed everybody, you know, 100% self, be 100% self-sustainable. And now we import, you know, about 90% of our, our food. And I think for everybody living in Hawaii, that's something that's, um, that they're aware of maybe. And, and so that's, that's more general related to food systems. But I think it just inspires me and, and I, I want to go back um, at some point and help make change. And I think that, yes, I'm working on college campuses, but I, I believe it's because it's it, a low hanging fruit and we could really achieve this victory. We hope to get every campus to go completely organic by 2030. And hopefully that can have ripple effects in communities and affect the EPA and get these toxic chemicals out of our food system. And hopefully that can really, you know, impact Hawaii. And I know some of these chemical companies have already started to leave, but they're just going other places. And so we really need to rid them completely. Yeah, a, a mass eviction of chemical companies from planet Earth. Yes. So what's the strategy? I mean, you said you want to turn every single campus, I'm assuming in the United States to organic or in the world. Like, what does that process look like for you? What's the plan? Yeah, I, I really think in a number of years, it's going to be widely accepted. Like if you look at the tobacco lawsuits, it took about 12, you know how you see like tobacco free campuses and stuff. There's signs for that. That was about 12 years after all of these lawsuits happened. And with Roundup, that those lawsuits started in 2018. And so we're still so early. But I think in about, you know, eight to 10 years, 
it's going to be a widely accepted thing and parents are going to be like, hey, wait, is this campus herbicide free? I don't really want to send my child to a campus that's not. But until then, it's a really uphill battle. I think it will probably take, there's there's around 10 probably uh, campuses of higher education that are organic, at least in the research that we've done, maybe there's more that we don't know about. Uh, there could be more, but there's not a ton. And so I think it's going to take probably, you know, 50 to 60. I'm just estimating to show that like, this is possible, have some data to show this is how much money we save. This is how much, you know, the soil microbial life improved. This is how much water it saved, all of this data. And then that will just sort of have a domino effect. And then I think, you know, we've seen after the Roundup lawsuits, there was like immediately a lot of countries even that were banning Roundup or you see with chlorpyrifos, like it is possible to have a federal ban on something. So I think it's not, it's not like campuses are really producing food. It's not like banning it from agriculture, which will be more difficult, but I think campuses could stop tomorrow and it will be fine. We would probably just need a, a greater acceptance of weeds while we figure out how to manage them. It's just mind blowing to me that a campus would say, you know, human health and the health of the environment and the health of our workers matter less than weeds. Yeah. I mean, I'm thankful to have a job, but every day it feels sort of ridiculous that I have to spend all my time on this. It's like, shouldn't this just be something that is, you know, like what, what? The fact that we have to fight every single day just to get cancer-causing chemicals away from from kids, like, that just seems really ridiculous. I'm wondering for you, and this comes up for a little bit for me, and I'm like, what do they call me? Uh, Gen Xennial? I'm right <laughs> at the cusp. And for me, when I look at millennials and Gen Z, they have the same attitude as you do. One, the change is inevitable. It's when, not if. Um, and two is like enough already. Like this is ridiculous. And so I'm wondering if the people that you're sort of working, fighting against or trying to persuade, like, Typically, are they just older than you and like more entrenched in another mindset? Like, is this actually just a generational divide? I was actually surprised because we did a survey recently where we surveyed a bunch of grounds managers at colleges across the country. And pretty much every single one said that they would like their campus to go organic. They just don't know how. And so that was pretty mind blowing because I was expecting it to be different. And, you know, it was only 30 schools, so it's hard to know what everyone would say. But for the most part, I think that people understand it and they get it now. They just don't have the tools. And so that's where that's where there's this gap and we can provide the tools. But I think it's also this like network that I really want to build where they could talk to each other. Because, you know, I think that you can learn so much more from just the peers that are in your same situation. Um, and, but yeah, I think, I think, of course, at the same time, I, I definitely think it's this generational thing where we're more like radical and feel this really big sense of urgency. And it feels like this is even just such a small thing compared to everything that we have to do. And we're frustrated <sighs> at the federal government for not making 
climate change a code red emergency and so I think it's both and I think it's also just like sustainability directors sometimes are not very supportive or just don't seem like they don't have that much capacity to to do anything about this and I think it's just a common overworked situation where there's so much that they're trying to do that this is they can't deal with this right now which is also frustrating because technically that should be their job and but you know you just get you get so overwhelmed and overworked and I think there's just there's just so much stimulus in today's society you know so many problems that we have to fight yeah so what I'm hearing for you is it's less a question of whether or not people want to do this it's more a question of how do we do it And one is a skill building work. Like we have to teach people how to manage lawns organically. Second is a values question. Like how do we value lawns? Is that what we need to have around us when we're in your case being educated? Um, And the final is, uh, you know, something I think deeply about, it's like an energetic and time management question. Like how do we prioritize um, this work when we're all working on so many things? Um, in, In your work, Mackenzie, like what has been your greatest challenge personally? Like how have you, so like what are the moments when you wanna quit? And like, what informs that? I think in the beginning, so I graduated in 2018. I had no, I had no plan to continue with this campaign. I thought it was just something that was going to live at Berkeley. And then I ended up going to the trial of Lee Johnson Monsanto. He was a former groundskeeper who sued Monsanto believing that his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma cancer was caused by using Roundup. And in that moment, something changed for me. And I realized, wow, this is such a big, this is such a big issue. This is going to have a moment. This feels like something that's important to expand. But what I didn't know was really how hard it is to start an organization. And like, I really wouldn't have done it if there was already an organization that existed, but there really wasn't like, we are really the only one that's specifically working on this issue on college campuses. And so I think now that I have a team, everything is, is, is going well, but there were many times that I wanted to quit when it was just me. And I think that one of the first times I talked to you on the phone was around that time period, because it was really just me. I didn't have money to hire staff yet. Nobody really wants to fund like a recent college grad who has no real track track record. I was working a couple of other jobs uh, because San Francisco is expensive. And, and it was just felt like, you know, oh my God, all of these people are dying of, of pesticide poisoning and I have to do all of these things. And, and it was less about maybe taking time to do self-care and what I really needed to do was just get money so that I could hire people and then take some of the stress off of me and so yeah I had I had a breakthrough with one one lovely person Kat Gilead who we know and love and and she was really the first person to to believe in the work and from there we were able to hire people and so 
once we hired people, I mean, there's, there's always challenges, which usually have to do with the administrative work of running a nonprofit and getting funding and thinking about how we're going to appeal to donors and all of this. And I, I wish that, you know, like we all do, like we could just focus on the work, but um challenges so that that's always a challenge but i think it's so much better once once you have a team and and the other challenge is just yeah go you know talking to administrations that are really slow moving like sometimes it takes weeks or months to even get a meeting and then months later to, for them to make a decision and then nothing happens and so i think just the bureaucracy of higher ed is really frustrating and there will always be people who, you know, say that what we're saying is not true and Roundup doesn't cause cancer and we're sort of a bunch of fools. But at this point, I think there's enough people in our in our space that like I don't question that. It's more of just like, okay, you're you're not gonna buy into this. Let's let's organize then. And you know, if, if this person's not gonna do this, then let's get a group let's get a petition let's put some pressure so that part is is fun and I, I'm just really thankful for all the people that I get to meet along the way like students are really really inspiring I agree I think you're really inspiring oh, um, thank you you too I think behind every good food ag environmental movement sits Kat Gillia from Series <laughs> Trust and like she's someone I absolutely want to interview for this podcast because she's taught me so much about being an activist in philanthropy and and so just wanted to take a moment for our listeners to sort of give her a shout out because she's a really incredible advocate and ally in this work. Um, Mackenzie, I know you spoke a little bit about the trial for of Lee Johnson and the groundskeeper. And I, I'm not assuming our listeners know about what happened with Lee and his trial. So I'm wondering if you could walk through sort of his story and how that story has shaped you as an activist. Yeah. So Lee Johnson was a former groundskeeper for the Benish Unified School District in Northern California, pretty close to San Francisco. He, and if, if you're not familiar with the story, I really highly recommend the book, The Monsanto Papers. It's about his story and it's really inspiring. And I couldn't stop crying when I was reading it, but <clears throat> essentially he used Roundup every day. Uh, and there was, there was an instance when his backpack sprayer leaked he got soaked in it. He ended up getting some rashes. And after going to a lot of doctors and doing some research, he figured out on his own that maybe this could be caused from the herbicide. He didn't really know about the whole evil history of Monsanto. So he just called them and said, hey, I, I got a rash. This might be from your herbicide. And they said they would call him back and nobody ever did. And later in the trial, when they were able to uncover all of these emails you see the email where they said hey this guy's calling just like please no one call him back and so then he kept going for over a year and it, it happened again where it sprayed on him and at this point it was it was really bad and and from doing some some research he discovered that other people were having this and that this could be caused from um you know before he thought maybe this could be caused from 
from the herbicide, but but at this point he was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and he decided to sue Monsanto, which is crazy huge, right? I mean, we see a lot of people try to go up against this massive company, which is now Bayer. And he he ended up suing and he ended up winning, which was huge. And they had some pre-trial days when I was in in college and I would like convince my professor to give extra credit to people to go and listen. So I would go and listen and learn so much. And then in 2018, I graduated, was just came back to Hawaii because I was looking for a job and then ended up back in San Francisco the day before the trial. And so me and my mom, I convinced her like, let's go to this trial. This is going to be a big thing. And it was really just one of the most impactful experiences of my life. I think sometimes you get those moments when you're like, well, I'm, I'm supposed to be here. Like this is, this is going to be like a really historic thing. And I was texting with friends in Hawaii who were trying to live stream it on their phones. And, and when the Monsanto lawyer was talking, he was the same lawyer who defended uh, tobacco. And I just like really uh, couldn't listen and sort of I should rewind a little bit to say, and I think I didn't really fully explain this, but when I was in high school, you know, folks like you, I watched go up against these huge corporations like Monsanto and really informed me on the GMO issue and how it's tied to pesticides and how communities were getting cancer and and these were causing birth defects and all these things. And I knew at that moment when I was in high school, I, I wanted to do something like this one day. And so in this trial, it was just such a huge thing because I knew that the impact that Monsanto had had in our communities, and I was just so fired up. So I ended up writing a letter to Lee and just saying, you know, how, how amazing he is and how inspiring and what we were trying to do at Berkeley. And I gave it to his lawyer to pass to him. And I remember him reading it and sort of turning around, like who just passed me this letter and it left my email. And so after the trial, he ended up winning which was $289 million that was then later reduced to 70, $78 million. And he emailed me and said, Hey, I like would love to get involved in what you're doing. So we, we brought him to Berkeley and he, he spoke to a bunch of people and then, and later we got to bring him to Hawaii. And, and because of his talk, the board of education ended up banning herbicides from every public state or every public school in the state of Hawaii. And I, I think that the thing that moves me the most about Lee, I mean, it's amazing. He's still, he's alive, but he's dying of cancer and, or he had, has a terminal diagnosis, but he's lived longer than people have expected. And he's just using his time. He was just in Canada last week because they made a documentary about him and he was speaking out of, about it. And just the fact that he's, he's willing to use this precious time to speak out for other people. And the big thing is, and this was for me too. Like at first we think these people who are spraying the chemicals are bad. Like how I approach the ground manager, you know, how dare you spraying these chemicals? And what Lee's story can really teach people is that these people are the most impacted. They're the most exposed. Like I mentioned earlier, they a lot of times don't even know that these chemicals are harmful. And that's really important because it, uh, what, it, you know, what Herbicide Free Campus, a huge part of the work that we do now is coming at it with a solution to help it's weeding days with the groundskeepers it's doing anything that we can to make their job easier and 
I think Lee's story really um, can shed a light on, you know, who are the the folks on the front line that are dealing with these chemicals. In my own activism, I too have had to learn these hard lessons of, you know, the carrot oftentimes works better than the stick, meaning to incentivize people and meet them sort of with nourishment rather than with punishment um, is often the way we win over um, our adversaries. And um, two, that sometimes the people that we're fighting against are also the greatest victims of the system. Um, And it is an awkward kind of work um, to to try to raise that awareness. Um, I'm also really sort of, again, for our listeners, thinking a lot about Lee as a Black man living in California and sort of being one example of just how racist our environmental um, policies are, who they affect are most often low-income people of color and workers. I'm wondering how you've built sort of a broad coalition to inform your work and like how you're helping to diversify the environmental movement, both as a native Hawaiian leader, as a young person, as a woman? Yeah, it's a great question. And a lot of a lot of the groundskeepers, you know, are often people of color. And you see that in landscaping roles and 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 in farm farm working, of course, as well. You know, the people who are handling the chemicals are often low-income people of color. And yeah, it infuriates me that, you know, this company in the trial, I guess something that I forgot to mention was not only did this chemical cause the cancer, but the company knew that it caused the cancer and didn't do anything about it and just sees this person and all of the people. Now there's over 100,000 people who have non-Hodgkin's lymphoma who have sued and they see all of these people as just disposable, that their lives don't really matter, that profit is more important than their livelihood. And that's why he won so much money because it was setting this precedent. It wasn't just about um, causing the cancer. It was the fact that they knew. And yeah, to your greater question, I think that in terms of the students we bring in, it's really important to get diversity in terms of in terms of race, in terms of lived experience, even in terms of major, like we don't want it to just be students studying environmental science. Like we wanna bring in students who are studying uh, labor rights or filmmaking or anthropology or, um, you know, economics or really anything because this issue is so intersectional. It's, it's a, it, it, you know, touches on soil and water and, workers' rights and pollinators and so many different things. And yeah, I mean, the environmental movement historically and still today is is still very white. And I know that that's changing and there's so many folks on the ground that are doing amazing work, but it's it's tough. And we're working on that as well. I mean, a lot majority of the students who apply to our fellowship happen to be white environmental studies majors and of course you don't want to exclude you don't want to turn anybody away from the campaign because really anyone that wants to bring this campaign to their campus should be involved but in terms of 
who's leading it, for me, that's something that is super important because, you, you know, your lived experiences and, you know, if you grew up in an agricultural area or your parents were farm workers or you used to see the planes overhead flying over you, like that's going to drive your work and make it really powerful. And so we're always looking for for students with those lived experiences and and we challenge our students to not only work on this campaign on their campus but really get involved in the local work too because there's so many local groups that are doing this work that are working with farm workers and we want them to know that this isn't just about you know protecting protecting privileged students who are able to go to college from pesticides this is this is like so so much bigger than that but college campuses which are seen as these you know really go this gold light in our society like if we can get those to change it, it can have huge implications but that's just the start like colleges just represent what can be done elsewhere um but this isn't just about protecting college students from pesticides, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm hearing hard conversations that you've had surface in that statement, because I do know that when you're an activist, folks can be really critical of your work because you're not driving more towards equity or you're not advancing their idea of justice or they think that you need to work on this issue or frame it in this way and what i hear you saying is um yeah changing the pesticide and lawn management practices on college campuses isn't the silver lining to changing the world but it's certainly what I heard you say earlier, low hanging fruit. And it is an entry point into the broader issues that we're facing environmentally. Exactly. And if you can train these students, give them organizing tools, they're going to use that when they graduate and they're going off to doing whatever, whether it's working on this issue or it's working on anything. And so it's, it's, it's about the pesticide issue and it's also about empowering young people and giving them the tools to organize. How do you think the world's going to be different when your fellows and other young people that have been bitten by the bug of social change activism start to take over bigger institutions and play bigger roles in leading our community? Such a good question. I, I think about that a lot because it's that's the the thing that gives me the biggest hope i i hope that you know if we can get these people into office if we can get them into you know different yeah managing these institutions themselves or you know leading businesses or whatever it is that just that the change happens faster that radical doesn't need to feel so radical like i i've heard this quote from from a climate activist before that you know why is why is uh taking large action on climate change seem radical like doing nothing should feel radical mm. but but yet it's it's sort of the opposite so i hope that the world will be different in the sense that things will just happen faster it won't feel like this big deal to you know divest all institutions from fossil fuels or 
ban all toxic chemicals from our food system or things like that. Like these things should, should have already happened and they should just happen and it shouldn't need to take so long. Yeah. I, yesterday I was chatting with my daughter who's 13 about her access to abortion Mm. because we all know, um, that the Supreme court is likely to delegate that authority to the states. And my daughter said, well, you know, I'm not really nervous about it because by the time I can have a baby, um, the, the lawmakers will be different. Mm. And it was like in that moment, one was her naivety that she's <laughs> actually very close to childbearing age at 13. And oftentimes it is younger women, women of color seeking access to abortion. Um, but two was that sense of inevitability, that sense of hope that I hear from you, which is like, it's almost our turn. And when we get our turn, we're going to do it differently. Yeah. Yeah. It's been such a hard week. And I think what always frustrates me is that, um, the left, like we're always, we're always behind and reactive and, like the right is very organized. I know we're we're delving past just the herbicide issue, but they're very organized and they have a plan for everything. And there's already many states that are going to pass laws like this as soon as this happens. And so I think that like we really need to get that organized. And I think that means getting our people in in office and really strategizing for the long haul because it seems I'm just frustrated that it it feels like everything is always a surprise and reactive and they've already planned for years ahead of what they're gonna do yeah I hear what you're referring to are these trigger laws in certain states where they pass it's at the minute that Roe v Wade is reversed abortion is going to be illegal in our state yeah um and, and I also really hear you. I mean, as much as it's hard for me to say, I have deep respect for the organizing strategies of the far right. I mean, they have done the work to embed their values in local community institutions, primarily the church, and to use those institutions to indoctrinate people in a worldview and then politicize that worldview and get them engaged in elections. And it, it's, I don't know, maybe it's the affinity that progressive folks have to critique religion that we can't just like go to the churches and try to enlist them in our work, but it's, it's worked. It's worked. And there, I, I believe 70% of Americans are pro-choice. And yet here we are. And I think the stat was that each of the justices that are voting to overturn Roe v. Wade were appointed by presidents who did not win the majority vote. So this is like an electoral college issue, you know, and so all these things. And so it just shows that, but that gives me hope in the sense that if they can win without even the majority, then we should be able to win with the majority. And I, I think like, yeah, the right is very loud, but I think that 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 we are stronger and we are more of us i hope and so yeah it's it's terrible it's frightening um it's really 
feels hopeless in times, but I think it really just comes back to people power and, and taking back, taking rights that, you know, that people have always done in history. Yeah, the Martin Luther King quote, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice is always what kind of keeps me centered in the face of a loss. Um, and I think we saw that in Hawaii around the pesticide issue. Um, we won at the county level, then we lost in federal court, but then we saw these national and statewide bans on some of the chemicals we were most concerned about. Yeah, and I think the fact that you were able to make your victories really loud even though there was wins and there was losses, I think that the world was watching that. And so many of these bans on chlorpyrifos and just all these, you know, states that have taken action and other countries was in large part because of these little islands and the fact that you're able to make your voice heard. So tell me, you know, in terms of storytelling and like telling the story of Lee Johnson, telling your story of herbicide free campus like where do you go to learn about the world around you and like what resources are out there for folks who want to get inspired by the work of others hmm that's a great question um in terms of food systems sort of news and things i always go to civil eats they have a lot of good stories on food I think um, like inspirations that I think of like Rachel Carson who wrote Silent Spring um, and, and more recent activism like Emergent Strategies is a great mm -hmm. book. So good. So good. And oh, there's so many. Um, I don't know, what do you, what do you go to? There's a, there's I a mean, lot. Democracy Now is my life source like the fact that she amy goodman who it runs uh independent uh media show called democracy now for our listeners it comes out every day um she's one of the only people that tells stories of resistance every single day so every single day you're reminded like i am a part of a fabric of activists across the world that are fighting to take back control over their land and their natural resources. And, and I, and I'm a part of that world too, you know, I'm not just a part of this world that feels like it's being gobbled up by power and control. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love Amy Goodman. That's such a good one. And I think on Twitter, probably the people that I follow, it's sort of this, yes, in some sense, it's an echo chamber, but it's also this uh sometimes you have to preach the choir and like get people on your side to sort of like continue to pump you up and so i just see a lot of people doing great work and on like maybe this isn't entirely related but i love um podcast i'm excited to hear more of, of your episodes and i love podcasts like on being if you've heard of that one krista tippett uh it's it's a little bit spiritual she interviews people of different faiths and just on, on their work and uh, it's really beautiful. I think it sort of opens up my eyes to all of the just beauty and, and people doing really interesting work. Um, yeah. So 
Why do you think young people need to be a part of the conversation about our future? Um, you know, part of what we've been working for in this podcast is to make sure we don't just tell the stories of change making of one type of human being. And you are somebody we thought of as like this next generation, younger activist who's done a lot, who's been able to weather the storms and challenges that activism poses us, but is also, you still have, you know, a long life ahead of you. Um, why do you think it, it's important that we start to include the voices and the opinions of young people in our movements? Yeah, I think it's important to include both because people who've lived longer really have more experience in the organizing. And so I think it's important for young people to be talking to older people and getting that knowledge. I do a podcast called Agenda 23 about the 2023 Farm Bill with my friend John Eichert, and he's 83. And it's just sort of like me trying to get as much information from him as possible because I think he's brilliant and like people need to know what he's saying. And I think, I think young people are important to include because we have this sense of urgency and we didn't grow up. We've grown up just in this, in this moment of, of seeing the failures of what companies and older generations have sort of been complicit in. And we're like, yeah, like you said, like enough is enough. We're going to change things. We don't, we we only know what is um how do i say this like we only we're gonna go for it we don't even know what isn't possible so we're just sort of going for everything that we can get and i think that that's really special and we're not going to accept mediocre right now like we again like don't really have time but i also see just in the climate movement i mean i don't want to like critique young climate activists but a lot of it to me feels like sort of shouting and angry pointing and and yes we need to be on the streets of course but it doesn't really feel like sometimes there's a whole lot of solutions that are being presented and that's why like i really like the work we do because we're trying to show educate on the problem and come in with the solution and i think young people in the climate space um it's great that they're getting their voice heard and also like we need to we need to also like get get people running for office and all of these things and like get in those positions of power to actually make the change. And I know sometimes people are just too young. Like Greta Thunberg says, I can't be in that position. So you're going to have to do it. And like, you need to listen. And so at, at some point, it's just all you can do is really just um, is, is just talk and um, inspire others and march and all these things. But I think, yeah, like having, finding young people who are, who are getting mentored by older people is really important. Yeah, it's interesting, like living in Hawaii, there is such a strong culture of respecting your elders and kupuna in native Hawaiian values are the wisdom keepers. And something that I've really had to reckon with is that as a white person, I'm not necessarily <laughs> proud of my elders. I don't necessarily see them as the wisdom keepers. And I think for me as an activist, it is actually contending with like a deep 
generational resentment. Like you guys have catastrophically devastated this planet in the name of lawns and mega mansions and processed food in the grocery store, like this lifestyle that you have fought for um, has real consequences. So I hear you that it really is about multi-generational dialogue. And for me, sometimes I get frustrated. I'm just like, I don't want to listen to your cynicism anymore. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like if you go back far enough with your ancestors or with mine, like there's always land people and people who mm. took really good care of the earth. And it's like sometimes we forget that it's like this very like it was not very long ago that pesticides and things like that became so widespread. But sometimes farmer like we act like, oh, it's this thing that is always been done, like my grandfather did it or my father did it or whatever. But it's like beyond that, like they didn't do it. And so we know that it's possible to not do it. Mm. And I think that's the beautiful thing is like, we're all indigenous to somewhere. And there was some ancestor that like took really good care of the, of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. I've been researching sort of the land-based religions of Northern Europe to try and connect with that sense of indigeneity that hides behind my sort of Euro-Mutt ethnicity. Um, but even those stories are hard to find, you know, it's yeah. like all comes back to the burning of the witches and <laughs> the decimation of all these sort of modes of connectivity and attunement that would help us see a wide open space as an ecosystem and not like a finely um, groomed green carpet to not walk on. Yeah. Yeah. So Mackenzie, I'm wondering if you had any advice for our listeners who are thinking about um, what it takes to sort of commit your life to social change. Like what have you learned over the past three, four, five years of committing your life to activism how are you keeping yourself whole and balanced are you keeping yourself whole and balanced I think just starting really small is really key like Mm -hmm. when I set out to make change on the beach volleyball court like I never thought that this would be my job now and I would be doing this it was just it was a really small change and then it sort of you know, went from there. So I think for anyone like starting small, starting with a pilot project, if you're trying to convince someone of something is really important. And for me personally, I've, I am actually going to grad school in the fall in Texas. It's uh, University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley um, in, in South Texas, uh, doing research, working with farmers on like trying to get them to do more cover cropping and use less chemicals and I'll still be herbicide free campus will still be going. But I think um, for me, uh, I've just done so much of this remotely on the computer and I really missed getting to actually work with people, especially people who think differently than me. Like that's something that I really haven't done um, a lot of. I mean, yeah, we like, you know, engage with stakeholders who disagree with us, but I'm not really working every day with them. 
And so that's been something that I feel like has been missing for me. And if I do want to branch, extend this issue to agriculture and maybe do policy one day, like I really want that of just like working with people who think differently. So I, I would say that too, uh, like engage with people who think really differently than you, if you can, because that's, it's just important to know where they're coming from. And, and you might not be able to understand them, but at least, at least hearing them out. And so back to your question of like, even where do you get your news from and stuff? Like, I think if like my most inspiring stories have been, you know, from, from farmers, from Hawaiian farmers. And so I think the more that you can actually talk to people, like go to the farmer's market, talk to your farmers, that sort of thing, just to get inspired by stories and, and hear them out. And if, if you say, oh, do you spray pesticides? And they say, yeah, like ask them, like, what's up? Like not in a condescending way, but just like, oh, I'm curious to hear what the barriers are and that sort of thing. So I think to our listeners, like go engage with people who think differently than you, because that's what it's, it's going to take. Like my mind was one time I went to a no-till conference in Kansas with a bunch of basically Republican farmers who sprayed a ton of Roundup. And it was like one of the most insightful experiences that I've had. I had never even like really met, met a Trump supporter at that point. And here they were like saving me spots at lunch. And we were all like buddy, buddy. And they like didn't think that Roundup caused cancer and like thought I was crazy and thought Lee Johnson was like had made up this whole thing. And this was the information I was getting from them. And it was just, whoa, like this person manages 20,000 acres. Like this person manages 18,000 acres. Like we need to talk to these people. We can't just pretend that they don't exist because like that's these old white men are the people who are managing most of the land. So yeah, that was a really impactful experience for me. And I'm excited to get to get more of that. Yeah, when I was working on the GMO and pesticide issue in Hawaii, the truth that I often had to land on was that my dad was in oil and gas. And he was like an incredibly good man and cared about his family and yet participated actively in the decimation of the earth's resources. And so when I was approaching company executives, it was from a place of like, this is like my dad. And like, yeah. I wanna know the world that you live in and the sense that you're making from that world so that I, I, it can't, so that I can reclaim your humanity in, in my mind. And like, hopefully when we both meet as humans, we can figure out a world that we want to live in together because I, I don't think that farmers spray pesticides because they're interested in destroying the planet. Right. Right. Totally. No, it's such a good point. Well, I think that we're done for today and I really appreciate your time and your energy and all the resources that you offered to our listeners. Um, anything you want to say before we finish up today? Oh, just thank you so much for having me. And it, it really feels full circle to have followed your work and seen the documentaries and really being inspired by you and by the work of, of all of the activists that worked on these issues. And yeah, if you're a student and you're listening, go to herbicidefreecampus.org. Our fellowship application is open right now and you can apply to 
to take this campaign to your campus or if you are just a community member and you have questions about uh, alternatives to Roundup or, or whatever that you heard from today, go and, and, and reach out to us and I would love to talk with you. And yeah, thank you so much for having me and thanks for being such an inspiration. My pleasure. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duration, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe, and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.